Welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. I'm kind of surprised with how the majority of the stuff I've been able to put out as recently and as consistently has been able to stretch out towards the end of the year. Maybe it's a part of me that's trying to play catch-up since there have been a handful of weeks inside of this year that I haven't necessarily been able to keep on the bi-weekly schedule, and I'm trying to get a lot done in the meantime leading up for the last week of the holiday season, but I've also been getting some sparks of inspiration a lot of the time based on the amount of stuff that I'm able to go through and finally watch over the past couple of weeks. And this movie uh, was no exception, but before we get into that, I guess we'll cover on a couple of pieces of news here. If you're coming in from the last episode, Attack on Titan is also going to be airing on Toonami on January 6th, and the day after that, Crunchyroll will be able to stream the final dub of the chapter on January 7th. So if you've been waiting for the English translation to essentially come out for that finale, that lined up at the beginning of November. You're in luck, considering that you'll be able to catch up on all of that stuff within the first week of the new year. And another one of the Japanese films that are making waves at the box office internationally as more of a surprise than just locally has been Godzilla Minus One. And I haven't been able to go through and have the opportunity to go see it yet, but considering that I've been hearing nothing but positive reception towards the rest of it, it might be something that I can go and do and catch by the end of the new year, considering that as of Friday, it basically ended up earning 20 million US, becoming the highest earning Japanese live-action film in North America. It also seems like it's creeping up on the highest Japanese international film that was going through, which, surprisingly enough, for most of this year, was the beginning of the Smith Village arc for Demon Slayer. Since the beginning, they had that, I can't remember if it was like an hour, hour and a half long prep that they were doing a little bit of a recap of season two, and then they were going to be showing the first two episodes of the Swordsmith Village. And at the moment, that was the highest grossing Japanese property internationally, at least for that piece, until Godzilla Minus One came around. So I'm really hoping that they'll be able to topple that, considering that Based on how the Smordsmith Village did, which I definitely talked about at length at a couple of previous episodes, I would want something with such legitimacy and positive reception as this to essentially take that throne. But then leading in towards pieces of Demon Slayer's next season, it definitely looks like they're going to be doing the exact same thing as they did with the Swordsmith Village, which in this case, the Hashira Training Arc, which is their next season, is going to be premiering in Spring 2024 with a world tour in February. So it definitely seems like they're doing more of a promotion reel or a here's a premiere technically that you can go see as a special event in theaters before the season starts airing and it comes out, which I'm not going to fucking touch with a 10-foot pole, especially with how the previous season ended. Like I said, I went at length previously, but it was probably the most irrationally angry I had ever got at a season finale in a while, especially for a long-running shonen, considering that it pains me to say that I'm still going to watch Demon Slayer because I'm just in too deep, and I know that the ending is in sight, so I might as well stick with it to the end. But based on how they concluded the previous season, I don't really think any... Okay, that's a little... I was about to say... I don't think anybody's really excited to see what the rest of the series has in store, except for people who are really fans of the action and the animation. It's one of the biggest series, anime series in the world for a reason. And I'm not going to just put a hyperbole saying, oh my god, the ending of that was so bad that it's totally going to be a detriment to the series' success as a whole next year, which is a completely stupid thing to say. However, for me in particular, this is 
so much less of a priority by comparison as it was doing towards previous years because it definitely seems like everything leading up to that show has just disregarded any kind of logistical storytelling or just stakes towards the rest of its characters and it's just not as worth it anymore as a whole. Although it is interesting and kind of cool to see it and Jujutsu Kaisen and Chainsaw Man being within the New York Times bestseller lists for December, especially when they'll have the opportunity to sell a lot more volumes in North America leading into the Christmas weeks. Now, in terms of Jujutsu Kaisen and the tumultuous production and ups and downs that that's been going over the past couple of weeks, it does seem that 2024 will be the conclusion of the manga. And probably how I'm going to do is the same deal that I did with Attack on Titan. I've still been satisfied enough with how the anime has been going and considering how successful it is. Odds are MAPPA is going to give a complete adaptation to this Shonen Jump franchise, and it'll definitely be interesting to see where it goes. Like, tiny comments online, I've basically just been saying, well, I'm sorry, but there is no better arc in the manga than the Shibuya arc, so that's kind of unfortunate, considering that even though with how many volumes it's been able to get out over the past couple of years, that we're not really having anything major to look forward to after that, but... I still think that kind of hyperbole is definitely not something that'll take away any more of my enjoyment, considering that even though Season 2 has been fluctuating, the set pieces that we've been getting are still going to have the opportunity to project its rise and its success up the stratosphere, but I can only slightly hope that the realizations and the showing about how the production has been affecting all of its animators and everybody down on the floor compared to the producers and the committees that have essentially been raking in almost all of the benefits for this show as a whole, that at least some change has to happen or some piece is going to have to break in order to make any kind of substantial change. But considering how much of the Japanese animation industry is actually going to have to do that for any substantial change to take place, I'm kind of highly doubtful. Although I am glad to see that The Boy and the Heron has been able to go through and open at number one inside of the U.S., as well as rake in $25 million over the past two weekends. So considering all the notoriety that it's been getting over the past couple of film festivals that have lined up over the past couple of months, it's still being able to go through, considering that it was the first Studio Ghibli film to get a simultaneous IMAX release in terms of with the regular other theater options that you've been getting across North America, Dolby Atmos, Cinema, DTS, basically between the rest of this ever since it ended up making its international debut at the Toronto, at the Toronto International Film Festival back in September 7th. But besides that, it's also in the running to have an opportunity to be eligible for the 2024 Oscars. And I know that it doesn't really fucking matter at this point because in terms of giving any kind of international recognition besides Parasite that ended up winning that year. The animation category inside the Oscars has always been a joke, but at the very least, next to the Super Mario Brothers movie, the anime films that are going to be having the opportunity to get nominated leading up towards The Boy and the Heron, Blue Giant, The First Slam Dunk, Lonely Castle in the Mirror, and finally, of course, Makoto Shinkai's Suzume. So if I had to guess which one of these would even have a chance of getting a nomination, then probably because it's just a legacy nod, they'll give it to Miyazaki. I don't think Suzume is a strong enough film on its own, outside of its popularity, to have the opportunity to get a nomination. But considering over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be catching up on the anime films that I wasn't able to go through, it is definitely going to be interesting to see how Slam Dunk 
has been able to live up to everything else in its predecessor and its manga as a whole. But now probably the biggest piece of news to come out over the past week is the fact that Chainsaw Man's sequel is not going to be a full season, but it is going to be a feature-length film, as it is going to adapt the entirety of Reze's arc up on the big screen. And I was definitely curious to see how this would line up, considering that it has been ages since I've gone back and reread any of those chapters or even into the initial season that we ended up getting to see. And the first season of Chainsaw Man ended up covering 38 chapters of the first series manga, whereas Reize definitely seems like it's going to be a really good stretch, considering that it only has 14 chapters. Or around there, if they wanted to just add up the side stories that go along with it, it's probably going to get about 16 chapters worth of adaptation, which for a feature-length film is definitely the perfect amount that they essentially need to adapt, especially with how big of an impact this arc was able to do inside of the original series. I'm very excited to see Reze essentially come into motion, especially when she was introduced several years back, and then seeing how MAPPA was able to turn Jujutsu Kaisen Zero into a success with very limited amount of time. Once again, really fucking horrible. However, the fact that they were able to turn around a production in just over four months to create a film and still have it to be that successful is no small feat. And then to top it all off with what they were able to do with Garo the Divine Flame and In This Corner of the World, leading into the first anime film that I'm going to be seeing next year, which is going to be Mario Kata's Maburoshi, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how the rest of this is going to go, but since it's the same deal. Unless an additional production committee has also been brought into the fold, my fear is that this production is going to take a bit of a knock as well, considering even though it is Ozaki's just future child of his entire company, the fact that he was able to ring the other production schedules around his own personal ambitions dry just so they could make Chainsaw Man as good as it was, the fact that he's going to do it and potentially do it again with a Chainsaw Man film, it kind of concerns me. Even though the content that they're going to be able to adapt, even if you did it in the most slipshod frame by frame, make it a slideshow. Even if they did something like that, the movie is still going to do well, and it's still going to be a phenomenal story to be told. However, if the cost of this movie being made means that every other production, once again, surrounding everything inside of MAPPA is going to be suffering for it, it's very tough to see if it's going to be worth it or not. But yeah, I was really thinking about if I should just hold off on the boy and the heron being a part of, because my year-end episodes... I go through uh, my favorites and least favorites, my films, my live action, all the other anime that was able to go through over the course of the year, and try to condense it all into one episode. And I definitely knew that going into The Boy and the Heron, that it, was, it should be a good enough film to easily make that list. And at least going into it, the rest of this episode is going to be major spoilers on The Boy and the Heron, or in this case, How Do You Live? So at the very end of the day, I would still definitely recommend you going to see this film 
and the bits and pieces of extra enjoyment that you could get is probably going to boil down to the more Ghibli films that you have seen, the more you will have the opportunity to enjoy this film as well. So outside of that, with the rest of this being a spoiler cast, this was definitely one of the most interesting Ghibli films I had seen. It was also very interesting to me considering that I have seen a lot of Ghibli films in theaters, and so I was kind of thinking about the last recent Ghibli film that I went to go see, but it was mostly because a lot of the Ghibli films that I had seen in theaters were only thanks to Cineplex's Ghibli Fest, and it gave me the opportunity to see a lot of these films for the first time, but then also on the big screen, considering that the last major, just not even Miyazaki, the last major Ghibli film the most recent that was released would have been when Marty was there back in 2014. And even though 2013 was also a big year for Ghibli in that sense, considering that they both had The Wind Rises and The Tale of Princess Kaguya come out, which was Isao Takahata's last grasp at direction before he unfortunately passed away, 2013 was definitely the biggest international year probably for Ghibli. And then ever since then, basically the films that I was able to go see in theaters would have been... The Secret World of Arietti, Ponyo, Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away, Whisper of the Heart, and arguably my favorite of the bunch, Porco Rosso. But for me to go see the most recent Ghibli Miyazaki, just anything, this is probably the first time I had ever done that leading in towards the rest of it, considering that back in 2013 and 2014, I was just getting into my anime fandom as a whole, and I didn't necessarily think that it was too much of a priority, because I do remember seeing ads on TV for Ponyo, for The Secret World of Arietti, for From Up on Poppy Hill. I remember those ads, but I never went to go see them in theaters, because even though I did like animation, I wasn't really thinking about going to see them in general. And so it was definitely interesting looking back on this being like my first major Miyazaki film to go see in theaters and to just have that incentive and that initiative to go. But I guess to bring it about and the entire theme that I want to talk about for this episode is that Miyazaki has never really been self-referential in his own works. He mostly goes and focuses on enhancing an adaptation whenever he's doing a work that has already been written as a manga or a novel, or whenever he's doing his own original piece to kind of influence as much of him. But whenever he's doing an original film, he tries to create a selective style around that piece and then expand upon it with every other idea and function that he can muster in order to create a fantastical experience that nobody had ever seen before. So, the fact that The Boy and the Heron is the most all-encompassing self-referential Ghibli film to date, even though it has no real competition, because none of these films have really done that before. I haven't necessarily... Because I have gone through and watched every single Ghibli film before, but I've never gone through and, like, taken it over a fine-tooth comb to find any other self-referential piece inside of the works as a whole, but then watching this film and seeing all the little nods and references and just not necessarily openly saying it, like, oh wow, that looks like, I, th where it's not like any of the characters 
pointing out something, it's like, wow, that looks familiar. I've seen that before. It's kind of like, no shit, we've definitely seen that. Those are the Kodama from Princess Mononoke. But the fact that it's that subdued referential style where it's just, it will be on screen for a fraction and you won't necessarily have a lot of time to process it. And it never really takes you out of the moment and pauses to tell you what it is, was definitely one of my favorite kinds of referential things that you can do in media. I mean, Arcane was the best at that, where it would still take small references and items and pieces from the wider world of Runeterra and League of Legends, but they would never take too much attention to it. It would just be on screen, and you could be Leonardo DiCaprio and fucking point at the screen. It's like, oh shit, that's Heart of Gold. That's my favorite kind of referential humor. It's unless. The, th well, even though I'd like to say, even though the point of the joke is to point out this is supposed to be a reference, which is essentially just mostly Family Guy humor, it's not necessarily something that I'm too fond of unless it is just done well. And letting it have, you know, an ounce of subtlety. But basically thinking about all of the things that were happening, which was fucking crazy. Like, me and my buddies that went to go see it, we were looking at each other at specific points in the film, and we're like, what the fuck is happening? Where are we? How did we get here? Why are there fucking large birds? Where did this king come from? Why is she inside of a glass cask when she, like, acting as Sleeping Beauty, being paraded through a kingdom while confetti gets hailed down from the rooftops, and we're just kind of like, where are we? <laughs> it's like, what have we just been transported into? And it was just, I didn't really point myself out to that being too much of a huge thing, not until that moment happened where it's like, oh fuck, they're just literally doing a mini-revert- oh fuck, they're doing a miniature version of The Cat Returns, but instead of cats, it's fucking just parakeets. <laughs> it's, I don't know, it's- we'll definitely get to that, but it's just, yeah. It is just such a Ghibli's Greatest References playlist when you start looking at it from that point, and it's just kind of like, oh, that's from that, that's from this. I've seen this somewhere before, but I can't remember when. Odds are, it was in another Ghibli movie, but you just couldn't remember it. Now, there are a handful of films that definitely didn't pop out to me as much at first, especially anything related to Isao Takahata. I do believe that in the respect of his memory, it definitely didn't seem like Miyazaki was referencing anything from, like, say, Pompoko, or The Tale of Princess Kaguya, or Only Yesterday, or My Neighbors the Yamadas. Most of that was just kind of by the wayside, and he let that be Takahata's own thing. Same deal, I guess, to a smaller degree to his son, Goro, where he didn't really do a lot of things from Tales of Earthsea, from Up on Poppy Hill, which, to be fair, was a little bit of Miyazaki's thing as well, considering that a lot of the finer points and character details and moments that happened inside of the story were from Miyaz uh, Hayao Miyazaki's, like, personal instruction and direction. But then it's just kind of like, and then absolutely fucking nothing from Earwig and the Witch, thank God. Uh, but there were a couple of other uh, one- or two-time directors that he did take a little bit of inspiration from whenever he put in a reference, no matter how small. I mean, to start it off, essentially Hiromasa Yonebayashi's two pieces, one of which would have been The Secret World of Arietti, a lot of that does come down to the size difference, but that's kind of mostly, like, foreshadowing Cat Returns. But then his other work, when Marnie was there, definitely does take a bit more of inspiration from that film, considering that, well, like a lot of Ghibli films, you're going back out to the countryside, you're going to a new place, that's totally fine. But also considering that... 
you have an isolated tower that is surrounded that is surrounded by either magic or external forces that make it a much more mystical piece of architecture than anything towards the rest of it, where it's kind of like, why the fuck is this isolated tower in the middle of a marsh? Let's not worry about that. Also, in terms of family being different ages across different sections of time, a lot of that also pops up in both films as well, especially when it goes towards the rest of it, as to how the familial bonds in the story need to be let go, but also that the familial bonds shouldn't be let go, but embraced more to create a stronger version of yourself. And not necessarily too big of a piece, but definitely because of Yoshifumi Kondo, it's definitely, it, it's kind of the same deal where he didn't really take a lot from Whisper of the Heart, most of that's going to go into Cat Returns, but it's almost like the shimmering tunnels revolving around everything inside of the stone, all of that is, um, oh fuck, this, I just realized that it's just a stone. Holy shit, that's actually crazy. Like, the holes that are inside the fucking meteorite also mimic the tunnels uh, and the structure that they're living in now. That's kind of crazy. But yeah, the shimmering way the tunnels refract light definitely made me think about the tunnels that she would crawl through inside of her dreams and the stories that she's trying to make. And then leading further into that, considering with the kind of pseudo-successor to Whisper of the Heart, which would have been Cat Returns, Unfortunately, due to Yoshifumi Kondo's passing, we end up getting it directed by Hiroyuki Morita. And essentially just everything about that film is referenced or at least taken an homage to the last third of this film, considering it's just you've got larger animals, which in this case it's parakeets instead of cats. Really weird uh, dynamic that they got going between the two of those. And it's just... All of them being able to talk, the kingdom dynamic, although the king himself is in a different reference that we'll get to later, but it's more like everything surrounding the kingdom of that entire film definitely just goes back to The Cat Returns with how the heroine in this story doesn't have as much power as the heroine does inside of this film, although there are so many heroines in this story. That's definitely one of the things that I always love about Ghibli films, is that a good chunk of the time, our major protagonist is a young boy who is taken by the call of adventure, but then in every single one of those, there is a prominent female figure inside of these works that legitimately go through and help carry them through the story, as well as there being a lot of Ghibli films with a lot of female protagonists that have essentially been iconic for several decades. Just everything related to The Cat Returns, whether it be the tall tower that leads back into the real world and having the opportunity to go through and see other parts and help other versions of the people and the cats that she helped in one world, basically being taken back into this one, a lot of just the general structure of everything does make it back to Cat Returns. Uh, I mean, with My Neighbor Totoro, kind of not as much so, since most of it's just moving to the countryside, understandable. Helping out a version of a sick mother, where it's either the mother is the prominent one who either passed away inside of the hospital, but in this case, he's trying to save his new adoptive mother who might also be his aunt yeah never mind so his aunt who is now his mother he does have to go in and save her in order to try and make it back to the world 
so not as much towards the rest of it, but there are a couple of, like a handful of ideas that were still parallel to Totoro. Ponyo was probably the tougher one for me to find, considering that a lot of the things that I can mostly bring back to that is that the way that objects can be transformed inside of the fantastical world, as well as one of the major players and major characters that help our protagonist is one is an elderly woman that goes through and not necessarily help him from the shadows but also give him a chance to go through and help explore the world and be connected back to his old one where Howl's moving castle most of the homage comes down to the his i don't know what was it great great uncle something or other most of his castle or the edge of the world and his kingdom definitely goes back to how he looks like there but then also the biggest place towards me is essentially the different doors inside of the kingdom that lead to different moments in time and different worlds and different spots and essentially just everything where it's kind of like oh yeah no walk through here this will lead you to a different point and to see that idea got brought up and rehashed in the boy and the heron was definitely interesting to see in terms of castle in the sky it's most of the comparisons that I can make to the protagonist that we have here can definitely go back to Castle in the Sky, essentially where it's the call to adventure, having a member in meeting a young girl around his age with a not necessarily magical power, but a power that is associated with her and her family. A couple of pieces that definitely bring about there. Not necessarily Grave of the Fireflies. I mean, that's also a Takahata film, which I said before but like the only closest reference that Miyazaki was able to go to it's like oh yeah no this is just post-world war ii I'll this is definitely not the first movie of his that either takes place during before or around world war ii but that is a very consistent piece of work and if you've read anything about Miyazaki is just that that was probably the most definite and impactful piece that happened inside of his family's history depending on where it took him and where he ended up becoming most of the stuff that I can bring up around Kiki's Delivery Service, it's essentially the only two pieces that I can go for towards there is that it's the clock tower that represents most of what happens inside the kingdom, as well as the kind of magic that a lot of these characters inside of, not necessarily the afterworld, purgatory, just other world possess. They do have the opportunity to go and use those, and it's cool whenever they bring it out. Same deal with The Wind Rises. This takes place just before World War II and all depends on the factory work that his father surrounds with, at least with the boy and the heron, since what his dad is able to do, especially with all of the different pieces and all of the different aviation tech that they're able to accomplish inside of the war. Of all the things that they could have picked, the fact that he has worked inside of aviation factories, that's probably the closest I can come to. The Castle of Cagliostro initially... The ruler of the kingdom, I was trying to make it akin to the ruler of Castle in the Sky, but then looking at his red cape, looking at his sword, looking at everything that was related to him, it's just that instead of having a cowardly king like the Cat Returns or a very static but imposing monarch in Castle in the Sky, they definitely ousted to go with this random third-act antagonist being a mirror of the Count from Castle of Cagliostro. So it was just such a weird 
dichotomy there towards the rest of it. Although, in this world, his subjects actually care for him. Whereas Cagliostro, it definitely seems like they all just follow him by principle. Uh, same deal with Nasca, The Valley of the Wind. A lot of what happened inside of that film doesn't necessarily get mirrored here, but the plants inside of the other world, as well as a lot of the insects that fly around next to the spirits, there were a couple of them, like dragonflies in particular, there is kind of like, oh fuck, that's from one of the dangerous forests inside of Nausicaa. So it's kind of interesting to see those designs get reused, not necessarily reused, but like taken homage to inside of that film. You could also take akin to some of the spirits and the sprites that come through inside of Spirited Away, but the biggest reference that I could probably go to and give would be the crossing of the Great Ocean, as well as the paper guards or spirits or servants that attack Haku inside of Spirited Away. I can't necessarily remember what they're called, but seeing how the paper are the ones that try to separate our characters and are one of the biggest obstacles and one that consistently try to do harm to them. It was definitely interesting to see that of all the protective talismans that this movie could have used to create a wall between our two of our main characters, that those were the ones that he decided to use in order to create that barrier. And leading into Princess Mononoke, the spirits, I mean, you could call them closer to stars. Like, imagine the star in fucking Wish from Disney. Like, that is probably, like, the closer shape that they have, but considering what they represent and all the spirits inside of this other world, this one would definitely go closer towards the Kodama from Princess Mononoke, considering how they're able to go through and interact and deal with the supernatural aspects of this version and with the princess, I guess, of this world with reverence and care and kindness. It was definitely interesting to see how the rest of that goes. But then, of course, when the God Stone, I think that's what they decided to call it, the one who is in charge and represents the structure of this fantastical world, when it breaks, it essentially just bellows out the same curse that we ended up seeing Ashitaka combat inside the beginning of the film. Like, those specific dark purple tendrils that are bleeding out and causing chaos and death into this world, it was like, oh, I literally have not seen you since 1997. Uh, that's interesting. Where it was just kind of like, yeah, that was, it was so close to the end of the film where it was just something along those lines being, hey, <laughs> it's like, oh, point this up, but it's it was just so close. Um, but the last definite piece that I would like to talk about would definitely go back towards Pocoroso, where the stone gazebo that is enveloping, or at least a lookout point for the great-great-grand-uncle, it's, it's definitely, like, tough to keep track of a lot of the family dynamics inside of this movie. However, mostly the gazebo that is taken inside the island that is the major focal point of Pocoroso is definitely a specific piece of architecture that does get referenced in a lot of his works in general. But then the only other piece that I could probably go towards is that instead of aviation being the major point, because Miyazaki is just a huge autophile, mechanical otaku, aviation, 
just everything like related if you let him go into the logistics of different machines and developments and pieces of transportation he will just go buck wild on anything uh but in this case it wasn't uh mechanics being involved it was a much more classical piece that revolved around chips and whether it was ones with simple sails and several different designs whether they were large or small or twinned or tripled there was a wall of ships that signified the border of this world being far off in the distance that you could never be able to reach no matter how far you swam or no matter how far you traveled instead of that being the barrier of the sea of planes that you end up seeing in porco rosso the fact that it was in this case just being a set of ships was starting to key me on to where it's kind of like okay this other world is just going to start referencing more ghibli works isn't it and towards the end of it it definitely doesn't seem like i was wrong now for my overall thoughts where it's kind of like i've just been referencing shit left and right towards the towards the entirety of the episode no matter how small it's like what did i actually think about the film and if i had to give it a single word it would probably be a mess it there is so much content and ideas and points and changes in pacing inside of this film that it can't like i don't think it's his worst work i don't think it's his best work by far it's one of those it's because it's so unique in the sense that there's no other self-referential ghibli film in its entire catalog besides this one and because it had such a plethora of things to go and choose it kind of spread itself out too thin to try and focus on any specific idea because i do believe that the start of the film really gets going and then it slows down and we're getting accustomed to this and we're seeing the new family dynamic and we're seeing how Mahito is essentially trying to get used to this new domestic life that he has been putting inside. But he then just goes about, and it's like he wants to go constantly. Where it's like from the word go, he wants to go help his mom from the fire. He wants to go get into a fight at school. He wants to go off to a fantastical world, even though he knows it's a trap, in order to have the opportunity to just do something about what the current situation has put him in and to be fair he does kind of resemble a young ashitaka considering that he's got a blade and he's got and bow and arrow as his main two pieces of weaponry that he decides to go for now that i think about it but it was so funny to kind of see where it's like i'm waiting and waiting where it's like you have been summoned you have been uh oh your presence is requested that's what they or at least that's what the subtitles are going it's like your presence has been requested as the fucking disgusting heron continuously goads him to try and either fight him or to meet him in this tower that is going to take him into a different world and so it's just so creepy it is really good at setting suspense where it's just kind of like oh wow a sly but majestic heron is flying through the rooms of this traditional home and it's like oh it's so majestic but so coy and then you see it smile with human teeth and you're like oh what the fuck is this thing <laughs> and so he goads this kid to meet him inside the magic tower for what feels like nearly half an hour where it's like there's nothing he wants to do but go and try to find adventure 
or just something else where it's it's kind of better that he ended up going into that fantasy world because I still don't really know why he fucking bashed his head in with a rock to make it bleed so profusely. Where it's kind of like he already he wanted to get in a fight, he got into a fight, he successfully like like all of his clothes are battered. Like, oh don't worry, your parents won't know that you've gotten into a fight. But he made the he made a self-inflicted wound worse exponentially worse by bashing his own head in which i initially thought was he wanted the kids to get punished more harshly that beat him up but then he covers for them and he said no i just tripped and fell this is all on me why did you do that in the first place i was just so fucking confused and i'm just waiting for him to get better i'm waiting for him to just go because it's like you know that there's he you know he wants to accept the call to adventure. You know that he wants to just get the fuck out of this house. But now I'm thinking, oh man, he literally gave himself a concussion and required stitches by bashing his own head with a rock. And now you're like, oh fuck, now we're going to have to stay inside of this home with all of these really weird proportioned grannies and grandpas just sitting inside of this larger than life fucking house. And like, can we please go now? I don't know. It was, it was such a weird way to start the film. And basically, as soon as you get into it that's when the movie starts to pick up a bit and it's just so funny to see where i don't know how that one particular granny decided to follow him and i don't know why she did in the first place but the fact that they were able to go in and it's like don't go in there no but i have to my aunt's mother like future <laughs> my future mother is in there who is now currently my aunt but that's that's beside the point and it's kind of like oh but it's a trap I know, but I gotta go anyways. It's like, yep, like, the movie already knows that it's just kind of like, look, you're walking into a trap. It's like, yeah, but we're not going to be able to progress the plot any further if I just stand here. And seeing it so quickly where it's like, ooh, but this could be your mother. And it's like, is it my mother? No, it's a replica made of water. It probably wasn't my best work. And then he immediately just turns around and fucking tries to shoot him with an arrow, which he was able to line the feathers with one of the previous ones that the heron decided to leave behind but inside of this world actually no outside of the world it, that's so weird i was thinking that because it was the other world that's when his feathers were actually able to go through and transform around some magic but when he first fires the arrow it legitimately just goes quicker and leaves at a much greater rate the first time it gets fired that he has to pull it out of the wall and so the fact that this dude was getting, like, chased by a homing arrow for no fucking reason, other than the fact that he had to, his powers had to be nerfed in order to become more of a guide rather than a full antagonist, was just such a weird choice for me. And it's kind of like, yep, all right, you, Heron, you're now the guide. It's like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> God damn it. All right, kid. Well, I'll see you on the other side. But yeah, everything related to the middle act of this movie had so... It, it was mostly just kind of like a lot of different ideas put together and little vignettes and ideas to try and push the story or to pad more... Not, not even push the story forward. More like pad it in order to get from one point to the next. Where it was kind of like, yeah, same deal. It was very slow when we got to the house. The boy accepted that it was a trap anyway. And the pacing immediately started ramping up again. And then we end up getting to the home and that it standard ghibli stuff you end up going to a cabin in the middle of a world that you have not seen yet and the pace starts to slow down a bit 
and we see the spirits and it's still slowing up and then they finally get to leave again and they end up moving forward and they go through and then they see all these parakeets go th surrounding this house and it's just so funny to see them go through it's like hey you've seen Natsuko yes where is she she's this way <laughs> as, they have, as they're branching knives and as they're hiding knives behind their back and it's like no we can't eat the mother she has a child we can't eat those people however we can eat kids <laughs> it's just what the fuck is going on i mean i don't know it's probably weirder considering the fact that the cats wanted to marry a human girl but you know what that's beside the point we end up getting a little bit 2001 space odyssey with the visions in dreams and the doorway to the realm of the master of this world or the god or whichever you want to call it and then it's just also things that were funny when they definitely should have shouldn't have been after all this is said and done after for no reason after we get to see natsuko at her bed still like with child and like not being able to move the fact that she just outright hates him with no regard for anything else that has happened inside of this film. She has never felt any ill will. She has never described how she felt. It definitely, unfortunately, seems like Natsuko in this film is just a goal and not really a character. Is more of like a goal to achieve rather than an actual character of her own because even though she has the chance to say specific lines that do help and give her more character it's completely lost in the fact because you don't really know how she's feeling because she hasn't been given any kind of chance to speak her mind or like become her own character in, in her own right so after they get pushed forward and then after he gets strung up by these chains and then broken out in the most comedic way possible where it's just such an interesting line that this movie like tries to thread where it's just the presence of overwhelming death and violence contrasted to the comical ways in which a lot of these parakeets are just subdued it was just such a mishmash of tones that really just got me laughing more often than being not especially when after the duke the king whoever you want to call him makes a deal with the ruler of the land and then goes back down and then sneaks back in and is following the heron and mahito through the rest of this greenhouse into veranda into garden he's just he's, he's doing the loudest sneaking you've ever heard and there is malice in the air but i just can't help but laugh whenever he's doing that because he does this for like five minutes and then he walks up to the main trio plus the god and it's like this is it this is my kingdom of set up fucking blocks i'm so fucking angry i am going to cut the foundation of the world in half and doom everybody in it for no fucking reason. It was just so out of left field. It felt like the movie just had to end. And so he walks up, looks at the fucking table, says, this is bullshit, and cuts it in half. Which then prompts the Princess Mononoke tentacles to come out. Like, the final... And this is what I'm talking about, the pacing. Where it just, once again, it ramps up once we meet Himi. And 
starts to ramp back down once the major conflict is over and he's knocked out and he's going to be boiled in a stew, which then ramps back up again as he has to go see the master of the world. And then it's just within the span of five minutes, it's like, look, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to go through with it. What? You can't do it? Fuck you. This foundation's bullshit. Cuts it in half. World starts to collapse and crumble. Mahito basically is talking to his the younger version of his mother, saying, You're going to die. Oh, but it's okay. I know if I'm going to have you, you're so kind. I'm okay with dying. Bye. And she just leaves into the door to another world. So all of this was just happening simultaneously in the past and in the present. And they're all able to get out of the crumbling world and everything revolving around the meteor and everything else. And the world behind them collapses and they get to go finally meet his dad and his new mom and everything. And they're all covered in fucking bird shit. And then everything's fine. And then transition to like two years in the future where they finally like grab their bags and his new brother was born and they're heading back to Tokyo and he turns and looks back at his bedroom not even and then he turns back and looks at his empty bedroom where not a lot happened inside of that bedroom in particular he was only in there for like a minute or two and then closes the door and then fade to black blue screen credits roll and we're just like what the fuck just happened it's it is definitely a mess just the entirety of this film has a huge pacing problem for sure where it's just at the very least, the peaks and valleys of how much is happening inside of most Ghibli films, they're not so few and far in between, so it is allowed the quieter moments to breathe and the heavier moments to at least elevate the action somewhat, and so the gaps between the hills and the valleys aren't as prevalent. This is probably the biggest gap out of any single Ghibli film I have ever seen, where the speed of the pace the dictation of the action, and just the scenarios and set pieces that go through and happen in tandem is so vastly greater than any other film that has essentially come out between those gaps that it's just, it gives you such emotional and tonal whiplash that in this case, it's not going to live up and it's not going to age as well as many as Ghibli's works have done in the past. Although, if there was ever a time for this movie to come out, it does make out for a really good self-referential piece that Miyazaki is creating towards the end of his career. So, I'm glad he was able to get that kind of work out of his system. I'm just hoping that before his passing, he will be able to get at least one more piece of work out that is more uniquely his own, rather than that is more back to the original ideas that he was able to craft in the past by comparison to him trying to wrap everything else that he has done into one universal work that he would believe that would have the opportunity to age better with time. But in this case, I don't think it's going to be it. If he unfortunately passes, I do think it is a fine work to leave off on, considering that it was his first self-referential work that he was ever able to accomplish. Although I just even... Hmm, I did say I would recommend it at the beginning of the podcast. It is a little bit of a tougher recommendation, too, where it's you will get more enjoyment out of it the more Ghibli films you've watched, but as a standalone work, 
I don't think it's going to have the opportunity to go through and shine as brightly as the previous pieces that Ghibli has been able to put out into the world. But we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, considering the amount of films that I have to get to towards the end of the year so I can start getting that list together, man, do I have quite a few to go through. I mean, I still need to catch up on Hibike's OBA. I still need to watch the Super Mario Brothers movie, TMNT, Gridman Universe, like all these pieces that have recently come out. I was really hoping that I would have the chance to get to see Gridman Universe inside of Canada, but unfortunately, I don't think they had just let us do it. So that's yeah, kind of unfortunate. We'll just see how that goes. I'm definitely going to have the opportunity to get one more episode out by the end of the year and whether or not I feel confident enough to put out the year-end episode on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, only time will tell to see how much time I actually have free in order to get all these pieces done leading in towards the Christmas break. So just have to wait and see. Cheers. Have a good one.